0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3,
2: 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast, I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, Senator Paula Simons joins us to discuss the final votes on C-69 and C-48 and why she voted the way she did. Elections Canada cancels a controversial get out the vote campaign, but not before a whole lot of money was spent. Also, e-cigarettes, how to balance the harm reduction benefits and the concern about underage use. Plus, with video review controversy of the Women's World Cup, a look at whether technology is ruining sport. Premier Jason Kenney is calling this a bad day for our economy and the Canadian Federation. And I don't think he's alone in worrying about the implications of what happens now that Bill C-69 and C-48 have cleared the Senate. I think a lot of people were maybe hoping that it wouldn't even get to that point, that maybe there was the possibility that the clock would run out and these two pieces of legislation would not be passed in time, that they would die on the order paper. Now that did not happen. So last night, the Senate voted to pass Bill C-69, although, and it should be noted, it is an amended C-69. C-48, the so-called tanker ban, that also passed the Senate, but just barely. So what does this all mean? Well, joining us to talk about these pieces of legislation, which I think in many ways have come to define her term so far as a senator representing Alberta and why she voted as she did, very pleased to welcome to the program, Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons. Paula, thank you for making some time for us here today.
3: Well, I, I'm just off the plane and, yes. uh, you know, I, I turned down to two TV interviews on the grounds that I hadn't had time to shower yet. So,
2: Well, it's the beauty um, of radio, isn't it, Paula? That's right. Okay, so let's start with C-69, because a lot of people are saying, oh, great, here we go. Paula uh, Simons, other Alberta senators voted for this piece of legislation. Now, you had originally had some pretty serious concerns about C-69. So let's talk about your vote on that one.
3: All right. So C-69, when it came to us, was, as the kids say, a hot mess. It was a deeply flawed bill. And I said right out the gate, like literally my first day in the Senate, you know, I asked questions about it. I would not be supporting it if it came back to us as written. Well, subsequent to that, I got put on the Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee, uh, along with my Alberta colleague, Patty Labakan benson and the two of us decided, since there were clearly not going to be the votes in the Senate to defeat the bill, that the best thing to do was, you know, in the immortal words of the Beatles, to take a bad bill and make it better. Mm-hmm. And so we were part of the committee that traveled the country, that uh did hours and hours of interviews with experts i mean i took so many meetings with industry lobbyists environmental lobbyists first nations lobbyists and together in the senate we came up with an extensive package of amendments that pretty much rewrote the bill from top to bottom we put forward 187 amendments with the support of all parties and we're not actually a party we're a group but with the support of everybody in the Senate, we sent 187 amendments over, and the government accepted more than half of them. They accepted 99. Now, and they didn't just accept 99 decorative amendments, as I think I've explained to you and your gang before. Uh, These were amendments that rewrote the bill from top to bottom. They were substantive amendments uh, that really dramatically changed the bill and much for the better. And then what happened was (laughs) that it's an election coming. I'm a nonpartisan person, and I'm not up for election, and I was a little naive about this. So, you know, I thought everybody would pat us on the head and say, great job, Senate, you fixed a bad bill. And instead, what the government said was, no, no, we, we hardly took any of the amendments at all. Because I guess they didn't want to admit, A, they'd had such a bad bill with 89 amendments. Or, second, they didn't want environmentalists screeching that, you know, that they'd been sold out and that the bill had been gutted. So the government, like, right out the gate, were like, no, no, we hardly accepted any amendments. It's all fine. And then, of course, the opposition were like, no, no, they didn't accept any amendments. It's all decorative and, you know, there were no real changes. Neither of those things is true. Is the bill perfect? The bill is most certainly not perfect. Is the bill way better than the status quo to get 2012? You bet. And so it came to the final, final vote last night and I thought, okay, uh, this bill is going to pass. That was never in doubt. Am I going to stand up and say, I defend the work that we did on this bill. I am going to tell Albertans that we took a crap bill and we made it loads better and we made it significantly better than what we have now why would i vote against that
2: right yeah there's a lot of confusion and you spoke to part of the reason why that is is i think the government has its own vested interest in sowing some confusion about these amendments i I don't think most people could actually explain what each of these amendments are or know which were accepted and which weren't And, and when you're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of amendments that's a real challenge
3: It is a real challenge because people said to me, "What the government didn't accept any amendments. Ninety-nine amendments. It's almost unprecedented. And these are amendments that fundamentally changed the structure of the bill for the better, that depoliticized it, that sped up the process of approval and didn't sell out the environmental interests. Because, you know, I, I speak for all Albertans. I'm interested in defending our core industries, but also in defending our environment and our First Nations. I mean, today is, you know, June 21st is is Indigenous Day. It's a day of reconciliation. So if we want to get projects approved faster, I mean, we just look at TMX, how not to do it. Is to not pay attention to Indigenous rights out the gate. What C69 will, I hope, do is allow proponents to engage constructively with First Nations right out the gate. And so this is, you know, this is one of the key changes that we made. The original bill basically made it next to impossible for a proponent to get together with First Nations and do things in advance to kind of smooth the process. Um, It was forbidden to do anything that would change anything in a First Nations community, uh, whether that was social, environmental, you know, physical. And I said, that's ridiculous. You can't tell proponents that they can't come into a community and start working with people and building relationships. So that's a small thing that got changed, but that was one that, that, uh, that I thought was really important.
2: A lot of concerns been raised over the amount of discretion that the environment minister would have as a result of C-69. Has, has that been addressed?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was really the core thing that we changed all the way through. In the original draft, I shouldn't call it a draft, in the original bill, um, the minister had extraordinary powers to intervene at every step of the way. Uh, And that's, that's that's bad for two reasons. One, you don't want ideology defining how your impact assessment goes. And that's true whether you've got a conservative minister or a liberal or a New Democrat or a Green one day. I mean, do you really want the minister to be deciding, micromanaging these tiny decisions each step of the way, holding up? I mean, that would—I mean—that was going to cause huge delays, mm-hmm. but it was also going to cause huge undermining of public confidence in the system. If you think decisions are being made for political reasons, whether they're being made by a conservative or or a, or a progressive environment minister, I mean, that's a bad—that's a bad system. So. We took a non-ideological approach and we said, let's depoliticize things. Let's take out that ministerial right to interfere all the way through the bill. So we gave that power instead to the independent arm's length expert regulator. Similarly, the existing law we have, CEA 2012, has a pretty strict standing test for who can testify and who can't. And there were lots of complaints that that meant people who legitimately were affected by a project couldn't speak. The government took out all reference to a standing test, and then there were equally legitimate concerns that everybody would be able to come to speak. It would take forever to get through a process, and that local voices might get drowned out by out-of-town experts or lobbies. So we came up with a compromise, which is again to say that the regulator has the power to decide the criteria by which people get to testify and how. So, you know, the regulator will be able to say, okay, you know, if you have a direct impact from this project, you can make a public intervention. If you're an out-of-town lobbyist, maybe you can't come testify. Maybe you can send us a written brief. Or, you know, maybe if you're an out-of-town activist, you can fill out a form online. So, you know, as I say, there were 99 amendments. I got, you know, I got 99 amendments and, you know, it's perfect... (laughs) They are not, but yeah. um, but um, uh, well. Here they, and let me ask they, you this: They way. really do make big changes
2: because critics have called this the the No More Pipelines Bill. The argument being that it, it sets the threshold way too high; it causes uh, too much uncertainty that, that no project would be able to get through this. You think under the amended C sixty nine that it's not fair to call it that—that that a pipeline project—and of course this applies to all other kinds of projects, but that a pipeline project could clear through this process. Well, let's,
3: you know, so let's take the second part of that first. It's really important to note that this is not a bill about pipelines. This is a bill about all kinds of infrastructure. So most of the projects that will come under C-69 will be mining projects, uh, whether that's uranium mining or diamond mining or, or you know, uh, uh, any, any kind of mine operation. Uh, it will affect bridges, big roads over water. It will affect railways, airports, harbors you know, all kinds of all kinds of infrastructure that's in the public, in the federal ambit. So it's important that we get a system that works for everybody. Pipelines will be a very small part of what it does, because it won't affect uh, pipelines that only run within a province. It'll affect uh, pipelines, whether that's for liquefied natural gas or for oil that cross provincial boundaries. Will it... I mean, I can't guarantee you that it's going to automatically greenlight a pipeline because any linear project is going to have hurdles. Will it make it better than the current system? I think it will because we only need to look at TMX to know that the current law, c 2012, which was brought in by the Harper government, which politicized things and gave ministers, you know, way more power than they'd had before, uh, has clearly not worked. So, you know... Politics is an imperfect art form. So, you know, imagine me sitting in the Senate. I've got one vote out of 105. I know I can't kill Bill C-69. So what's my best play? My best play is to fight like tigers to make it better, to fight for Alberta. And then when I get 99 amendments, I, I think my best play is also not to then, you know, spit on that, is to say, okay, look, that was substantive. This is a huge victory for the industry. And then I need to go to industry and say, look, I know that you're upset. You didn't get exactly what you wanted. And I know that, you know, political actors are spinning this for their particular political reasons. But, you know, I I flew out to Ottawa this week with a guy who was on the board of ATCO sitting next to me. And he had many questions. And I was like, okay, we did this and this and this and this. And he said, oh, well, I didn't know any of that. And that's the problem. Because this came so late in the parliamentary season, uh, I mean, I mean, we, it was the last thing we did. See, we passed it last night, and then that's done. That's it. That's you know, we won't be back until after the election. So no one has had a chance to really absorb what happened.
2: Let's talk C forty eight. You voted <laughs> no, and, and in fact, it was it, it was close. I mean, the Senate nearly did closer. reject C forty eight. I mean, one of the strongest arguments that's been made, I think, is that it's completely redundant given C sixty nine, but it had a lot of other problems too. So, your, your rationale for your no vote on that one?
3: Well, C forty eight C forty eight attacks a problem that doesn't actually exist in real time. It you know it bans tankers from picking up. It bans tankers from picking up persistent oil at northern British Columbia ports. Well, there are no ports and no pipelines to which it applies. What it doesn't do is stop tanker traffic, uh, like American tanker traffic, from transiting through Canadian waters. Unfortunately, we have to hope the Americans continue to abide by a sort of gentleman's agreement. Uh, It's a voluntary exclusion zone dealing with the president who's not always a gentleman. So... C-48 didn't solve that problem, nor did it solve the problem of smaller ships, whether that's tugs or ferries or, or cargo boats, um, spilling fuel oil and, and, you know, bunker sea and diesel into the waters, which is a serious problem. C-48, in the meantime, you know, slammed, it was such a finger in the face of Albertans, because it is it is the No More Pipelines bill. It is a bill that says no pipelines to the sea. Mm-hmm. Whether or not there's ever going to be a business case for a pipeline to the North Pacific uh, is a very good question. There isn't a business case probably right now if we get TMX, Line 3, and Keystone all up and running, fingers crossed. So, you know, to me, C-48 was, it was unnecessary and an unnecessary provocation. And I really felt, as I said in my speech in the Senate last week, that it was an attack on the contract of Confederation. Alberta is a landlocked province. We need to depend on our neighboring provinces to get our goods to market. Uh, And it doesn't matter whether those goods are beef or canola or, you know, uh, legumes or oil. If British Columbia says you can't get out, no wonder we feel trapped and stifled and strangled. And no wonder we get our feelings hurt. Uh, So, you know, I I thought C-48 was bad politics and bad public policy. And I was able to convince – well, I don't want to put all the credit on me. Lots of people made up their own minds. Mm -hmm. But I helped, I think, to convince a significant number of my independent Senate colleagues to vote against the bill. We almost defeated it. It was very close last night. The Speaker, who doesn't usually vote, but who was allowed to vote on a a final message vote, um, cast – you know, he cast a vote in favor of the bill – um, one of uh, my Senate colleagues who I thought was going to vote against it ended up abstaining. So, you know, it was, it was really close. And it is frustrating to think that we got that close to defeating the bill. There would have been huge constitutional consequences to defeating the bill. And I think some people got cold feet, not because they thought C-48 was a good idea, but because they thought that we had to be quite prudent about using this ultimate hammer to. To say no. I mean, I had a couple of colleagues who I know were really opposed to C-48 and who had spoken against it, but who in the end just erred on the side of parliamentary prudence, I guess.
2: Well, yeah, and I, you know, and I do understand that as much as this bill I, I think needed to be defeated. There, there is that dilemma I think that that senators face that if this was passed in the House of Commons, if there's some kind of a democratic mandate for yep. this, is it is it right for the Senate to get in the way of that?
3: Yeah, cuz you know, I think, you know, and I think some of the conservative strategists are a little nervous about this too because let's imagine a scenario that Andrew Shear might win the next federal election. I mean, I'd say the odds are about 50-50 right now. Mm-hmm. So Andrew Scheer wins and you've got a majority of independent senators who've now been taught that they have the power to defeat government legislation they don't like. The conservatives might not like the logical consequence of of that form of thinking. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's been a very interesting eight months for me in the Senate, let me say. Uh, but, you know, it's... It's very tricky because I really respect some of my Senate friends who in the end changed their minds and voted in favor of C-48. I don't for a minute think that that was an easy decision or that they took it lightly. By the same token, I have to say that the fact that I voted against C-48 at every possible opportunity and spoke against it has in no way insulated me from people accusing me in very colorful graphic language, not to be said on family-friendly afternoon radio, um, involving various parts of my intimate uh, geography, uh, very interesting gynecological diction, um, screaming at me about C-48, and and attacking my other Alberta colleagues. I mean, Patty Labucant Benson also voted against C-48, and you should see her hate mail from people who are like, oh, you know, you, expletive deleted, why did you vote in favor of this bill? And like, it doesn't matter how many times I say to people on social media, but but I didn't didn't vote in favor of this bill. Well, oh, you're lying because I heard you did. Well I- it's a matter of public record, so I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to say, yet again, I did not vote in favor of C-48. It's bad public policy, and I've opposed it for a long
2: time. Well, and, and we believe you, Paul. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for making some time for us here. Get, get a bit of downtime here, but I uh, appreciate you doing this here today
3: thanks all of my gynecological parts
2: thank you for this opportunity okay that's good thanks paula uh alberta senator paula simons uh so her thoughts on c69 and c48 and why she voted as she did Well, it seemed like a really terrible idea from the get go. Elections Canada has belatedly uh, come to that conclusion and have scrapped plans to use social media influencers to try to persuade young Canadians to vote in this fall's federal election. Right. And, and I guess we can understand why they're focused on this issue. Young people tend to vote in smaller numbers. Elections Canada feels as though maybe they have a role to play in encouraging voter turnout. So, you know, I guess the thinking would go like this, right? I mean, what are young people interested in? Well, they're interested in social media. Maybe these social media influencers could better connect with young people, encourage them to get out and vote. So there were 13 people that were chosen for this campaign. We're going to spend originally $650,000 on this campaign, writing checks to, to social media influencers, some of whom are doing pretty well for themselves. Well, it turns out that uh, many of these social media influencers are, are somewhat partisan themselves. And Elections Canada became concerned that this would be seen as a partisan effort as opposed to a just a get out the vote kind of effort. So they've scrapped the campaign. But they've already paid some of these influencers. Joining us to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome to the program Amanda Connolly, political reporter with Global News, who's been tracking this story. Amanda, thanks for joining us here today.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, you got new details up at uh, globalnews.ca if people want to read more for themselves. But why did Elections Canada end up scrapping this program?
0: So as you mentioned, the concern here really was the backgrounds of some of these individuals and some of the things that they have posted in the past. Again, none of them that we can tell so far have been explicitly politically involved with any of the main parties. But when you go back through their social media, you see posts around things like calling for a change of government in 2015, saying that they're proud of Justin Trudeau for having a gender-balanced cabinet. And things that, even if they're not specifically campaigning for any one party over the other, do suggest in some ways that there is a bit of a bias there towards certain candidates. And Elections Canada looked at that and said, after a lot of backlash coming out from the opposition parties here in, 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 in Ottawa and on Parliament Hill, that this might be a little bit too risky of a venture to have coming out from an agency that is supposed to be, again, impartial and purely concerned with making sure that the elections can go off in a straightforward way with integrity.
2: So it, it sounds as though they, they hired these influencers and then kind of vetted them, basically, as opposed to the other way around. Is that what happened? That
0: seems to be the information that we're getting here so far. And again, we're, we're still learning a lot of the details as they come out on this. But what I've learned so far is that it was during the final vetting program, the, the final vetting process here, that some of these concerns began to emerge. But of course, by that point, they had already paid the 13 influencers roughly $325,000 total among the 13 of them out of that initial $650,000 budget for the video campaign. Now, we don't know how much each influencer actually got, Elections Canada is saying that they paid each of them different amounts, and they're not saying how much that actually was. But if you go ahead and break down $325,000 among 13 influencers, that's roughly, if they were equal, about $25,000 each. So you're spending quite a considerable amount of money here for a campaign that now is not going to go forward. Uh, and, well, we're not going to be seeing the, the videos that we know here were actually recorded with these individuals.
2: Right. So the, the 325000 then that represents about half of what was going to be spent, right?
0: Correct. Yes.
2: And some of these are fairly well-known names, aren't they? That, that these, these influencers, obviously they were selected because they have some profile, but the fact that we were prepared to, to shell out thousands of dollars, of taxpayer, taxpayer money to these influencers, I mean, some of them are, are quite well off, aren't they?
0: They are so. You're looking at individuals like Olympic sprinter Andre DeGrasse, Olympic swimmer Penny Oleksiak, uh, Ashley Collingbull, who is a First, a First Nations activist and model, and Lily Singh, a prominent YouTuber who has a, a kind of a talk show on on that platform and, and that kind of thing. So there are a lot of them are again very prominent individuals who've been very public for in a, in a lot of different ways, and you're really looking at here. I think. Um, Election Canada trying to kind of figure out what their role is going forward here. Of course, they've had a number of restrictions that were placed on them by the former Conservative government in terms of get out the vote efforts lifted by the current Liberal government. And it looks like here, based on kind of what we're seeing from this this campaign and how it was handled, that they're trying to find a balance in terms of how do you go forward with, again, trying to get uh, increased voter registration in groups that do tend to vote at significantly lower percent uh, percentages or proportions but also do that in a way that's going to avoid these kind of situations where the people that you're working with could be perceived as having partisan interests or at least uh, previous partisan remarks now of course the issue is that they're not going to be asking for any of this money back from the influencers because they've done their work elections canada says they've recorded the videos they've been in they've actually done what they were contracted to do and the issue now is that after that was done They're running into these issues that apparently were not flagged um, prior to them actually being brought in and paid to do this
2: work. Now, what are the Conservatives saying? Because I I saw some of the tweets from Pierre Polyev, and it seems like they're basically saying, we told you so, but they had been uh, raising the alarm about this, though, hadn't they?
0: They had. This has been a a big source of concern for the Conservatives over the past couple of weeks. And Pierre Polyev, of course, being one of the ones who's been speaking out most vocally against this, uh, he's accused uh, Elections Canada of being a liberal lapdog, uh, saying most recently this morning to Global News that if the CEO of Elections Canada didn't know about these partisan comments that had been made, then uh, in 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 his words, uh, he is either biased or incompetent. Pretty strong words coming out there, of course, but it does raise questions, as, you know, as to why these were not caught sooner. When something as simple as a Google search with some of the individuals' names and you know phrases like Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper do tend to turn up a lot of these
2: results. Yeah, quite a story. Much more, as mentioned, globalnews.ca. Amanda, thanks for the update. Appreciate you joining us here this afternoon.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, that is Amanda Connolly, a political reporter with Global News, globalnews.ca. Uh, more details on this mess at Elections Canada. So, yeah, what, what were they thinking? I think that's a pretty fair and logical question. As the Conservatives say, if Elections Canada didn't know about any of these past comments from these uh, so-called influencers, then maybe that does smack of incompetence. If they did and went ahead and hired them anyway, that would be indicative perhaps of some bias. So which is it? And, and neither is good. Uh, so some of these individuals, as yes, should make some glowing comments uh, about the prime minister. The Trudeau makes me happy, one said, uh, is the ideal man. Uh, one of these people even referred to Stephen Harper as Hitler. So why, why would you hire people like this? If your objective is to be as nonpartisan as possible, to try to simply get people to vote, you might want to make sure that you're not hiring anybody who is overtly partisan. And they did. And to make matters worse, we paid them for videos that will never see the light of day. What a mess. Some interesting stories this week concerning e-cigarettes. And so I felt it was worth revisiting this issue because I think this is an important area of public policy and and how we're trying to balance, I I think, different concerns. I I think there is a lot of value in e-cigarettes as a harm reduction tool. Certainly e-cigarettes are far less harmful than actual tobacco cigarettes. And so the health benefits of getting smokers off of cigarettes onto e-cigarettes, those are considerable. And I do think we need to uh, be encouraging that shift and to view it from a harm reduction point of view. On the other hand, we don't want young people starting the habit. We don't want young people using e-cigarettes. We don't want young people addicted to nicotine. So we intend for these products to be for adults, and we need to regulate them that way. Uh, Of course, a lot of municipalities, a lot of communities have sort of lumped the two in together and tried to regulate them the same way, even though there's some obvious and meaningful distinctions and differences. In fact, news this week that the city of San Francisco has actually decided to ban e-cigarettes and leave the much more harmful product on the shelf, which seems really strange. But we do have a study out this week suggesting that in Canada, e-cigarette use by minors has increased substantially. And even a concern that that could lead potentially then to smoking increases in this age group. Is there a connection? Because we have had a lot of success in reducing teen smoking rates and overall smoking rates, too. Uh, So joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program one of the country's leading experts on these matters, David Sweeney, adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, also advisory board chair with the Center for Health, Law, Policy and Ethics at the University of uh, Ottawa, um, longtime anti-tobacco activist. David, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Uh, Very good to talk to you again, Rob.
2: Well, let me just start with the story out of San Francisco, and I think it sort of represents some of the absurdity we we do see around e-cigarettes and and policy. The the idea that we would ban e-cigarettes but leave tobacco cigarettes on the shelves. How strange is that?
4: It's certainly pretty strange. I mean, if we look at this from the annals of of public health, I mean, there's a famous story about dealing with uh, cholera in London in the 1850s when Dr. John Snow, isolating cholera to a certain pump, took the handle off the pump um, so that people get their water from a well that wasn't going to give them cholera. What San Francisco is doing is sort of like saying, well, how about we leave the handle on the Broad Street pump but take it off all the other pumps? You know so the only water that's going to be available is something that has cholera i mean it it just it seems absurd over the top um, we've seen other things like this from um, from California and you know it's it's really a concern when you know in the United States over half a million people are dying every year from cigarette smoking, and we know that uh, it's the smoke that kills people. It's, it's not the nicotine. And that vaping is one of the non-combustion alternatives is going to be massively less hazardous. So to have a moral panic about the low-risk product, you know, they may as well be saying we're going to get rid of the clean needles in San Francisco. You know, mm-hmm. we're only going to have, uh, the, the dirty contaminated needles available for IV drug users. I mean, it's just, I think it's a sign where, where people have gone off the rails. That, uh, And this is one of the problems. If you have a moral panic, if you have people who see nicotine use more as a sin than a health issue, uh, we end up with, with policies like that. I think they're terribly counterproductive.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would agree. Um, but, you know, there, there is legitimate concern about uh, young people and e-cigarettes. And they're, they're not intended to be for young people. We don't want young people getting hooked on nicotine. They are different from cigarettes. And I think you're right. We should be careful about uh, lumping the two together. But uh, how do we approach the question then of, of young people and vaping?
4: Well, I think the same way as we approach just a tremendous range of, of other things, Rob, that, Every time we do something that that has positive benefits, we have the risk of unintended consequences. So you you come up with a pharmaceutical product that can cure a whole lot of uh, disease, but in some people it might cause problems. What do you do? uh... if you have uh... seatbelts in cars it'll save a tremendous number of lives but some people might get trapped in their seatbelts uh... not be able to get out before a train hits the car or something what do you do we ran into this with airbags that they can save a lot of lives but some of the early types of airbags if someone was small of stature sitting in the front passenger seat they could be injured because of the impact of the airbag So we we constantly look at these things are being logical and say what can we do um, you know, I think we can take uh, some solace in, in Canada that though there's a reported increase in vaping among young people, it appears to be almost entirely experimental. You know, these are people who are, are trying it. They may have tried it a couple of times in the last 30 days. There is very little regular use and almost none among never smokers. So it's less than 1% of never smokers have tried vaping 15 or more times in the last month. Um, and so I think that's, that's good news. The U.K. has done an even better job, and I think we could learn from what they've done in the U.K. that has encouraged vaping among smokers, but we're not seeing an uptake among young people or non-smokers. And, and I think that, you know, there are policy things that we can do, including telling people the truth about what these products are about. You know, let smokers know why they should be using it. You know, probably the thing that would be most discouraging of a young person finding, uh, using the product is knowing that their, you know, their, their aunt or their uncle is using that product, uh, or that you know, us old people are using it, right. uh, and tell people about it. Uh, but the idea of saying, we'll make it illegal to give people accurate information about low-risk products, and then we'll be surprised when people aren't using them properly, I mean, is, you know, it, it's absurd, but it's entirely expected.
2: It is, and, and I mean, it speaks to the challenges around marketing too, because we, we do want to to make sure that that adult smokers are aware of these products, aware of of the health benefits of of making the switch. But you know, marketing can be used in a lot of different ways, and I know there's a concern that that it's it's maybe being marketed to young people.
4: Yeah, you know, there's there's concerns about that, and and that's certainly something that that we can. Uh, look at there are actions we can take. I mean, we do that on other products. You know, if you're marketing alcoholic beverages, um, you, you better not be marketing them to to young people. Yeah. I think there's been more hype about young people, and there's also the the problem of uh, social media, young people uh, sharing stuff themselves. Uh, and, and part of that is probably reaction to people saying you shouldn't do this. Um, it would probably make much more sense if. We were just very clear about the huge advantage to vaping if you're a smoker, Uh, rather than, you know, San Francisco might be crazier than here, but we still have rules that say that if you're running a vape shop, you're not allowed to tell people that your vaping products are less hazardous than their cigarettes. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, And with some of the low-risk alternative products, it would be illegal uh, for a manufacturer to tell people truthful information about relative risk. I think that goes way over the top. I think that we should be encouraging truthful information. We should be encouraging the information that that can literally save about 120 lives a day in Canada that people are now losing from cigarette smoking. And we should come down like a ton of bricks on people who uh, misrepresent products or uh, market them in ways that cause harm.
2: There's another question in all this about the, the gateway effect. And certainly there's been evidence suggesting that it's, it's not there, that as e-cigarettes have become more available, smoking rates have continued to decline. Uh, the study published this week, though, suggests that uh, among 16- to 19-year-olds anyway, that uh, in, in accordance with or along with this increase in, in e-cigarette use, that we have seen a slight increase in, in smoking rates in this group. Did you see any connection there?
4: Yeah, uh, well, it's very hard to tell, Rob, when you you look at data like this. I mean, to put it in perspective, uh, when I got involved in trying to deal with cigarette smoking in Canada, this would be uh, beginning of the 1980s, 42% of 15 to 19-year-olds were daily smokers. We reduced that to the point that we're not even looking at daily smoking anymore. We're looking at things like how many people have had a cigarette 15 out of the last 30 days. And that's in the range of 5%. Mm-hmm. So if you get it being you know, a little below 5% to a little above 5%, is that just a natural variation? Uh, is that something we should be really concerned about? Uh, certainly we want to monitor it, but we do have policy tools that make it less likely that somebody would use a cigarette, and it makes it far easier to do that once you've got an alternative. It's sort of like we, moving people from leaded to unleaded gasoline. You know, once you've got a lower risk alternative, you can use tax policy, you can use differential advertising, you can point out, you know, the idea that on these products, one of them makes you stink and kills you and the, the other doesn't either of those things. Uh, so there, there's many things that we can do to make it very unlikely that the gateway will move people to the more expensive, smelly or deadly product uh, and that the gateway works the opposite way. That It takes people who are smoking cigarettes, encourages them to move to a product that is far less of a risk to them, no risk to the people around them, doesn't make them stink, and costs them way less money. Yeah. I mean, that's quite uh, quite an advantage to these products. And I, I think that, as we're seeing in other countries, we can reduce cigarette smoking very, very rapidly if we take a sensible approach towards substitution, you know, which we've done with a tremendous range of other goods and services. You know, Once we know that we've got something that's less hazardous, if we can reduce a risk, we should. And we have a long history of being able to do this. You know, we don't have people dying uh, from eating canned goods now. They're they're not getting the sort of snake oil pharmaceutical products we used to have in the 1930s. We d- we have uh, automobile death rates that are a tiny fraction of what they were just a few decades ago. You know, airplanes don't fall out of the sky the way they used to. Fire deaths are massively reduced because we keep moving to lower risk alternatives to the extent that we can, and we have the ability to do that. The technology is there. We just need to use policy in order to essentially make cigarettes history. Go to the point that we read about cigarette smoking in history books, not in in medical uh, textbooks.
2: Right. And that, that's why so much of this policy approach seems backward to me. I mean, I don't know that banning cigarettes is the answer, but it would at least make more sense if San Francisco banned tobacco cigarettes as opposed to e-cigarettes. If we're concerned about young people smoking cigarettes, let's raise the age for tobacco to 21. Let's increase tobacco taxes, right? Why, why are we focused on e-cigarettes if it's cigarettes that we're worried about?
4: Yes. Well, I, I mean, I totally agree, Rob. It's, uh, uh, it's absurd, and if you look at what we've done with various other things, I mean, this would be like saying in the in the 1960s, you know, you can keep the cars that are unsafe at any speed, according to Ralph Nader, but we're going to ban the Volvos. Uh, you know, why would we do that? That you know, we'll keep the snake oil products, but but we'll ban the science-based pharmaceuticals. Uh, we we will allow operations to be done in hospitals, but only with unsanitary uh, 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 equipment. Uh, and we we move in the other direction if, if we're being rational, and the opportunity here is just extraordinary because we now have a range of products that can deliver the nicotine that smokers need or want at a a level of risk that's a tiny fraction of cigarettes, with the ability for that technology to get ever better to get people off the smoke, and then to the extent that they 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 want to to get them off the nicotine as well. So we we have. The makings of a breakthrough, we're we're already seeing it in many countries. You know, about a third of the Japanese cigarette market has disappeared in three years because of substitution. Uh, Norway has reduced uh, cigarette smoking by half in 10 years because of substitution. Iceland's reduced it even more, and again, because of giving people alternative products. The U.K. has reduced cigarette smoking much more rapidly than other countries because it's embraced vaping. It's encouraging people to move. And we're seeing even in the United States, which, you know, has silly policies trying to discourage vaping, but the public's picking it up, and we're now seeing from Nielsen data that U.S. cigarette sales are falling far more rapidly. And it looks like products like Juul that are, you know, being demonized by a lot of people who are, you know, abstinence only, have captured about 7% of the U.S. cigarette market already in a very short period of time, you know, coinciding with this very rapid decline in, in cigarette sales. And I think that's the sort of stuff to celebrate, too, to say, how do we get more of that? You know, how do we get more adults off cigarettes? And at the same time, we want to avoid the unintended consequences of young people using them. But, my gosh, you know, it's, it's the, the, the parents, the, uh, the grandparents, the coaches, the teachers of those kids who are dying. And, and most of them are saying, I wish I didn't smoke. We now have products that can meet their needs, but when we do... Uh, uh, consumer surveys we find most smokers have no idea how much lower the risk is by switching to products like vaping. So surely step number one is tell them the truth. Uh, the biggest breakthroughs we've had in public health really come from you know, two simple things. You give people enough information to make an informed decision and you give them the ability to act on that information and amazing things happen. And we now have the ability to use, you know, some nudges as well, like differential taxation, availability, et cetera. But I, I think that we could get rid of cigarettes very, very quickly if we took a rational approach. Um, the, the moral panic about what if a young person uses this strikes me as like somebody screaming about people who get sick going into hospital. Yes, yeah, some people do, but overall hospitals are a really good thing, um, we want to do things to reduce the uh, transmission of disease or an injury in a hospital, and we do, but we don't close them down because some people have been getting ill. We, we took, take a, an unintended consequence, and we, we rationally deal with it to say, how can we limit this while maximizing the gain that we can have? And when you're looking globally at 7 million deaths a year from cigarette smoking, that's 20,000 a day, 120 of them in Canada, uh, every day. And it's because of a dirty delivery system as people sucking smoke into their lungs you know, to, to get their nicotine. If, if we got caffeine by smoking tea leaves, we have the same problem. Yep. We have the ability to change that. And it's got to be one of the biggest public health opportunities we've ever had. How do we seize that initiative? How do we get to the point that we can eliminate smoking and accomplish the sort of health gains we had from things like eliminating smallpox?
2: Well, indeed. I will leave it there. Uh, David, always appreciate the insight and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
4: Always great talking with you. Rob.
2: Likewise. Take care. David Swiner, University of Ottawa, uh, adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law, also advisory board chair with the Center for Health, Law, Policy and Ethics, and has spent uh, many years involved in uh, lobbying against the tobacco industry as an uh, anti-tobacco activist and sees a real potential in e-cigarettes that hadn't been there before. And so I think that's why a lot of anti-tobacco activists are excited by the prospect of e-cigarettes and the impact it can have on smoking. But obviously, e-cigarettes are not harmless. And there are concerns about the use of e-cigarettes. Obviously, if someone's going from not using either to vaping, that's potentially a concern. All right. Well, look, I mean, we saw during the Stanley Cup playoffs, you see it in other sporting events I think Flames fans can uh, attest to a certain puck that was across a certain line in a certain game. It can be really, really frustrating when the refs miss the call, when they get it wrong, when they should have had the right call and somehow they didn't. Now, the answer to all of that was supposed to be technology. We are able to go back. We already got the, the replay. So the opportunity then for the refs to, to double check and make sure they get it right, and this is all going to be great. But it hasn't quite worked out that way, has it? And the technology that was supposed to fix all these problems is creating a lot of problems of its own and creating a lot of frustration. And we've seen it through the hockey season where we get these endless reviews of offside and was the skate off the ice by a millimeter or not? Was the puck a millimeter in front of or behind the, the skate blade and that of the player on the other side of the ice? And, you know, to sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes as they're trying to sort all this out, it's just become incredibly frustrating. So now soccer is getting infected by this. We've already seen it this week at the Women's World Cup with some weird decisions on penalty kicks, the reviews that lead to the penalty kicks. And then we've had two occasions this week where penalty kicks were taken. And then that's followed by more reviews because, wait a sec, the goalie was supposed to stand on the line and might have moved slightly ahead at not exactly the right time. And fans are feeling really frustrated. And I know Scotland and Nigeria are feeling really kind of screwed over by the whole thing. So is technology ruining sports, the the same sports it was supposed to save? Is it having the opposite effect? There's a really interesting piece in the National Post today arguing that, yeah, this, this whole thing really does suck. Andrew Potter is an author, journalist, columnist, associate professor at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, even a former amateur soccer goalkeeper himself. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, My pleasure. How are you doing? Doing really good. So let's talk about the idea behind, I guess they call it in soccer, VAR, video assistant referee. We just call it instant replay if we're talking about hockey. But same sort of premise, right? That this technology is going to make sure we get everything right. Who would be against that?
1: Uh, yeah, so that's the idea, right? That um, it's, it's supposed to be a uh, another set of eyes uh, helping the referee. Because traditionally in, in soccer, uh, the referee has been almost like the captain of the ship, right? Uh, the, the, the final authority on everything from, you know, what happens on the field, to how much time is left, and so on, right? Um, and the idea was, well, you know, in this fast-paced age of ours, right, maybe the referee needs a, a second set of eyes. And uh, what it's turned into is basically just this uh, this digital surveillance over watch system where uh, basically nothing happens on the field that the referee doesn't sort of stop, put his or her, uh, you know, finger to her ear and wait while someone in the video is communicating. And, and no one has any idea what's happening, right? Um, there's a couple of symbols they use, these hand gestures they use to tell you sort of what they're doing. But uh, no one really knows what's being called, why, what's being looked at. And it's, it's, it's basically, it slowed the game down, in my opinion, and really uh, made, made for some various dubious results.
2: Well, and I know, I mean, I think the impetus in the past has been that that there's been bad calls or things have been missed and and it's frustrating, right? And so, yeah, I, I get trying to find ways of correcting that, but it almost seems like, I don't know, like the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. Maybe we fix some of those missed calls, but now we got this whole weird situation.
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, I make this distinction in the column between uh, the referee as seeker of truth and the referee as a dispenser of justice. And I think especially for people who are hockey fans, they understand the idea that justice is is something that um, very often uh, takes priority over truth. Uh, you, know, you know the old idea or the, the, the running joke that, um, you know, in, in playoff hockey, right? Penalties stop being called, or the last five minutes of, of a tight game, penalties stop being called, right? And, and that's sort of, we're just used to thinking about hockey that way, right? The, the, um, the referee is trying to achieve a just result um, without trying to tip the balance one or the other by sticking to the strict letter of, of the rules, right? And, and soccer has that uh, it, it, as well. It doesn't have like a code the way hockey does, but it has, uh, it has, the referee actually has in the law of soccer, the right to play the advantage, that is not make a call. If he or she judges that the team, you know, in possession of the ball, um, you know, would suffer by having that penalty called on on their behalf, Mm -hmm. and. Um, partly I think it's just because we have this technology now, it's this, it's this ongoing, and I hate to sound like a total Luddite about this, but I think, you know, sometimes Luddism is, is the correct <laughs> take, right? That, that just because you can you can second-guess or, or, you know, run 20 different replays of a, of a play to see just exactly what happened, that actually, I think, sometimes doesn't do justice to what actually is happening on the field and what judgment or decisions the referee is making yeah, on the well, fly. Well,
2: but I, I think it's an interesting point because... You know, I mean, theoretically, we wouldn't need referees. I mean, we, we've right. got enough cameras on the field that, uh, that this could all be done by maybe even AI or certainly by people sitting in, in a booth somewhere reviewing every aspect of the play, regardless of the sport. But I think the idea of some human element, there, there's still something to be said for that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, in, in two ways. I think, first of all, I think the judgment element um, is irreducible in soccer. There are some sports I think you could just have AI refereeing, like tennis. Um, you just, just have the computers call the ins and outs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, in a sport like soccer, um, I think there is, there well, you know, just the idea of the advantage is itself a, f- a form of judgment, right? Deciding whether to give a yellow card, uh, a red card, and so on. These are all judgments. The referee is an actor in, in the show, and um so that's one thing and i think another reason is i think just sort of the the, the, the broader ethics of sport that part of what I, what I try and teach my kids and so on is that like life isn't fair um and sometimes referees get it wrong or in your view they get it wrong that's part of the that's part of the game right yeah and i think to try and get that out of the game misunderstands the nature of sport and what it means in our society in, in, a, in a fairly profound way
2: right and and I, and I would draw a distinction too i mean if if something happens Outside the view of the referee, if, you know, if you punch an opponent in the face behind the yeah. referee's back, then, then maybe someone else needs to step in. But I, I, I get back to the point, though, if, it, if it's if it's not obvious, does it matter? We have this problem in hockey where, you know, was the skate on the ice or a millimeter off the ice? And we're going to call back a goal whether or not that's offside. Right. The same thing with, uh, you know. What happened to scotland what happened in nigeria yeah. you know was the goalie off the line as the shot was being taken right before the shot was being taken and you got to slow it down and review it a hundred times if it's not obvious does it matter
1: yeah i think you you're nailing the head with the, or the, hit, the hit the nail on the head with the analogy to hockey we all remember the 1996 97 98 nhl playoffs right where yeah. they, they decided that um, they would enforce the strict rule of no skate in the crease, right? And how many, and, and then it all came to a, a crashing halt when Brett Hull scored the triple overtime winner, <laughs> right, with his foot clearly in, 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 the, in, the, um, in the crease, but they didn't have the guts to call it back, right? right. So they, and they got rid of it, right, the following year because they realized they were trying to make uh, a technocracy out of something that, that can't be made technocratic. Um, and, and the thing, the, the, the example of the goalie is getting caught sort of hopping forward, I mean, that's, that's been standard practice. When I played a goalie, when the shot is taken, you hop forward six inches or so, not to sort of cut down the angle so much as just get ready to play, right? You're getting ready to, to, to jump one way or the other. You're getting, you know, it's, it's like getting on the balls of your feet. And that's how goalies are trained. And they've come in and put in this rule that um, if, you, if you so much as, you know, creep forward an inch, they're going to call it back and have it, have it um, run again. Um, which is crazy, right? Because um, it, it is hard to overstate the extent to which saving a penalty shot is a massive boost for your team, and uh, you could see it in, in Scotland and Nigeria, and there was another one with um, the Jamaican te- goalie saved one. Three of them, I've seen three of them called back and redone, right? Yeah. Which is which is a travesty. I mean, how many? I, I, I've never seen that in my, in my entire goaltending career. Had seen a redo, a do over of a penalty shot, and right. I've seen three in this World Cup. But I mean, the
2: odds are against the the goalkeeper in a soccer penalty anyway. Um, yeah. And what was particularly galling, I mean, the French example where they judged the, the, the Nigerian goalkeeper to be a you know, millimeter off the line, the French players were already streaming into the box before the shot was taken, which is also a no-no, but some right. things are reviewable, some things aren't, I guess.
1: Yeah, and, and the fact that the French player actually shanked the kick and didn't even hit it on net, right? So it's not like any advantage was gained. So, so yeah, the, this whole, and, and what's crazy about it is also, you know, we haven't talked about how, how long it is taking. Like both of these replays, the French-Nigeria one and then the one with Scotland, took, took almost 10 minutes. Which, which is an eternity on the field yes. for the players. They're cooling down. The fans are going, what's going on here? Um, I mean, I suspect so, – so one of the interesting things is the, um, this was scheduled to um, be introduced in the premiership in England next, next year, and they've already announced that they will not be re- using it to review uh, penalty shots. Um, Is they, right? they, they, they've seen what's happened, but you know, it's I, I go to Montreal Impact games here in Montreal quite a bit, and uh, you know they do they do it on the field and they show the replays on on the, uh, on, the on the big video screen, and you know. I, it doesn't really help. The, the, it just makes everybody angry, and, and I really think that really it's undermining the sport in a,
2: in a fairly serious way. Well, it feels like it is, but I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic with the uh, organizing bodies because I think they're they're trying to get it right, and maybe this is all part of a, a process of figuring this out. I mean, the NHL keeps revising and reviewing and revising the instant replay rules and the challenges, and I think soccer is getting a lot of backlash. Certainly, what we're seeing at this uh, women's World Cup, right. I, I don't I don't know that there's an obvious answer to this is there no there's not but I think I think a couple of things one is um and I'm, I'm certainly not
1: uh I haven't followed it that carefully until I started watching the world cup but apparently one of the um rationales for introducing it and being so strict at the women's world cup is uh the, the refereeing apparently at the women's level is not great um, and they really thought they would be helping the referees, um, out, uh, helping, helping sort of a, a, a fairly in, in, um, insecure and uh, inexperienced group of referees. Um, so, so that's part of it. But I think another part of it is um, – we tend to misunderstand what slow motion does to our brands. Like, when, when, you know, when you're showing something in very, very slow mo, like a super slow mo, it looks like um, it's almost like bullet time in the Matrix, right? You think that the players are slowed down and that they're 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 thinking and acting in these like micro increments, right? And, and so you, you tend to ascribe sort of intention and deliberateness to things that are just sort of happening very quickly on the fly. And I actually honestly think like I'd like to see someone write something interesting on this because I think the referee is a better judge of something that happens at, at full speed in real time than they are watching it on a video replay. Because I think in the video replay, it screws with your understanding of what the play, what's going through the player's mind.
2: That's an interesting point. Well, the debate will continue, no doubt. Uh, Your piece is up as mentioned at nationalpost.com. Andrew, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate that.
1: It's my pleasure. Have a good day.
2: You as well. There you go. Andrew Potter, uh, nationalpost.com. You can read his piece today. Um, Yeah, yeah, I don't don't know. Like I said, I don't know what the answer is. got a text here that says, maybe the assistant referee should have more responsibility in making calls to help with the referee. Instead of just worrying about the ball, that could be done with VAR, whether it's in or out. I think that was initially the point of VAR on soccer was if he had a ball kind of bounce right on the line to be able to go back and look, did it cross the line or not? And and that I understand. And same thing in hockey. Did the puck cross the line? That's a big question. It's either a goal or it isn't. I almost wonder in soccer, I mean, maybe you should have two referees. Is there too much for the one referee to try to keep track of?